to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Miller and the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. The citation for this case is 2016 EWHC 2768 Admin, and this case was heard before the High Court. Now for those of you who have been paying close attention to the news in recent days, you will no doubt be aware that this is the famous Brexit case that has been dominating the headlines. So I thought it would be a good idea to closely examine this case, have a look at some of the arguments on both sides, and try and come to some sort of conclusion about, legally speaking, which side has the better argument. Obviously the origins of this case go all the way back to the European Union referendum in June that voted for Brexit in the first instance. However, one of the practical difficulties of doing this is that EU law and UK law have been closely intertwined for the last 40 or so years, and so undoing that mixing up of legal systems and even the various structures involved obviously takes a lot of hard and difficult work. However, the process of doing this starts with Article 50 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. If you are interested in finding out more about the legal effects of this, then I have a video up on my YouTube channel that goes through this in more detail. But for our purposes, one of the first things that the High Court in this case actually looked at was that Article 50 Subarticle 1, i.e. the decision to leave the European Union, is inextricably linked to Article 50 Subarticle 2, which is the negotiation of an agreement on leaving. I think that the High Court considered this to be important because it creates that link between the referendum result in the first instance and that end point that we're aiming for, i.e. being separated from the European Union with perhaps some trade agreement in place to replace that. Before we get there though, Article 50 is this first step and the government wanted to trigger Article 50 by way of royal prerogative, i.e. without a vote in Parliament and this was in contrast to going through a parliamentary vote. And this question of whether the royal prerogative can actually be used was the question for the High Court in this particular case. The government's first argument that it presented is, to be honest, rather weak, and basically states that, well, it doesn't say anywhere that we can't use the royal prerogative. Unsurprisingly, the court rejects this argument completely out of hand. But this does build into what I see as the government's main argument that later follows, i.e. that international relations in general are considered to be prerogative powers, which are exercised by the Crown. Just a quick note at this stage, when I talk about the Crown, um, I'm not really meaning Queen Elizabeth II triggering Article 50. Really, we speak of that as another name for the executive branch of the government, or in practical political terms, Theresa May and her cabinet. Anyway, this point about international relations being part of the royal prerogative is very much true. If you think about it, when we first joined the European communities back in the 1970s, it was the government or the executive branch that actually led the negotiations and sorted out the treaty arrangements. Then, once that was all sorted, in preparation for the UK to actually join the European Communities, the European Communities Act 1972 was then passed by the legislature, i.e. Parliament, so that those rights and obligations under EU law, 
could actually be implemented within the domestic system. And this enshrines the idea of parliamentary sovereignty. And there's a number of cases around this that are worth looking into in itself. But essentially, the important point here is that the government dealt with the international relations side of things and headed up on negotiations. Meanwhile, the legislature back at home looked after the domestic legal system. Leaving the 1970s behind and fast-forwarding again to 2016, the government is arguing that the same sort of principle should apply when leaving the EU. In other words, the government should negotiate Brexit and then it would be up to Parliament to confirm this later on, perhaps through something that was discussed like the Great Repeal Bill that Theresa May spoke of at the Conservative Party conference. However, this argument doesn't quite work and the High Court picks up on this. They do say that triggering Article 50 is effectively a form of international relations, but leaving the EU will also have an effect on the UK law by depriving people of their rights under the European Communities Act 1972. These rights vary from very basic things such as voting in European elections, right through to the free movement of people, one of the fundamental aspects of EU law. This ultimately means that the argument against the government in this situation is in fact rather very simple. It's true that the Crown does have the power to act in relation to matters of international relations, but where those discussions of international relations have a direct impact on domestic law, as triggering Article 50 would undoubtedly do, then that can no longer exist as a prerogative power, but in fact needs to be put before the legislature as was argued by Miller and the other people who brought this case against the Secretary of State. So with this in mind, are we heading towards a parliamentary vote? Well, certainly not yet. It looks very much likely that the government will appeal this case to the Supreme Court, and they will also have to make a decision on these very important constitutional issues. Nevertheless, while I will undoubtedly cover the Supreme Court decision when that comes out, I think that this is as good an opportunity as any to discuss a number of the factors involved in this case. In particular, I want to look at four different criticisms that were made in relation to this case. Some of them are related and some of them are very different, but each throws up their own interesting issue that has an effect either on the political or legal issues involved. The first criticism is actually of the government's arguments that were put forward in this case. There's even some suggestions that even though the government hired some of the top lawyers in the country to argue these points, they're still going to make some substitutions in terms of their legal team before the case gets to the Supreme Court and is argued there. It's certainly true, and you could probably tell from the way that I described the government's arguments, that they weren't exactly robust. Arguing that the government should be able to use its prerogative powers simply because, well, it doesn't say that they can't use the prerogative powers, was never going to be very convincing, and while it was interesting to bring up the question of international relations, it always felt that this constitutional principle was always going to be undermined by some of the more grandiose constitutional principles such as parliamentary sovereignty, which has always been a cornerstone of UK constitutional law. So I think that these criticisms of the government's arguments are probably valid to a great extent, but I guess the question I would have is, what else could the government's lawyers actually have done? What could they have argued that might have actually convinced the High Court? Well, in a few minutes we'll have a look at some of the constitutional arguments that could have been put forward, but 
realistically, in terms of the legal arguments, there's not much there. I think if I was the government's lawyers in this situation, I might have had a bit more of a careful look at the European Union Referendum Act 2015, tried to dig into the details of that. I think that most people would agree that the referendum was not binding in any sense of the word, but the Act itself doesn't really make this explicitly clear and it might have been an interesting argument to raise before the court. Even if the court were to find that the referendum was not binding in a legal sense, there would perhaps still be an argument that the government was trying to use the royal prerogative to exercise the will of the people. A clear majority of the population were in favour of Brexit, and Article 50 is clearly the mechanism involved for triggering that process. Again, I'm not sure that this would necessarily stand up because of some of the constitutional questions involved and also, as we've discussed, the non-binding nature of the referendum. But it might have been something else that the government lawyers could have done to try and persuade the court of the wider principle of respecting the will of the people. I guess that the point of going to Parliament with a vote is that they should be listening to the people and Parliament acts as the people's representatives. But why would you really need to go to Parliament over this process when you've gone to the people directly by way of a referendum? Moving on to the second point of criticism, a lot of legal scholars have sought to look at the actual decision itself and try and critique that, especially on constitutional grounds. This has been a fantastic opportunity for some of those constitutional scholars who spend most of their days in libraries to stick their heads above the parapet and offer their two cents. In particular, Finnis has tried to develop the government's line that because international relations are a scope where prerogative powers are allowed, then this is a case where there is no need to go to Parliament for a vote over Article 50. In order to do this, he makes a comparison with areas of double taxation law, where UK treaties with other governments are naturally implemented into the UK domestic legal system. Finnis essentially argues that the same ideas should apply in relation to EU law. Essentially then, when the executive acts in the area of international relations, these changes are automatically made in the domestic UK law as well. This doesn't necessarily require an act of parliament, or certainly not a new act of parliament where one already exists, and there is precedent for using this royal prerogative. To be completely honest, I think that this entirely misses the point of the case. When we're looking at the law, and this can apply to any area of law, we can essentially take two different views of it. One is a very black letter law point of view, so if you're looking at something like taxation law or wills and probate, then you really want to pay attention to the detail of the law, and it's important that you get the details right, namely because you are dealing with something that is empirical, that is measurable, and so applying the law in a precise fashion is really important. On the other hand, you can also take a view of the law that is much more based in politics or is based in what is actually going on in the world. You can imagine something like jurisprudence or even something like tort law has to closely examine what the social reality is of our situation in 2016 when looking at any particular decision or case that's put in front of a court. In this case, Finnis has clearly taken a black letter law approach to an area of constitutional importance, and that's his right to do so, but I don't necessarily think that the court should follow him in doing this. 
looking at something like double taxation and trying to apply it to something much larger than that, such as rights under EU law, completely misses the point. The court was very keen throughout the case to go through the different types of rights that have been acquired by virtue of the European Communities Act 1972, and how they would potentially be affected by triggering Article 50. It's important to note here that Article 50 is not conditional. Once it is triggered, that means that the UK will indeed leave the European Union. In turn, this will mean a loss of various rights, such as free movement of persons, as I talked about earlier, as well as potentially free movement of goods, depending on what deal the government is able to actually do. To make a very specific constitutional law argument on the basis of double taxation when we're dealing with really important rights, kind of feels like we're giving the government a buy on the basis of a technicality. I think that the argument that I'm making here also links into the idea of the European Communities Act 1972 being a constitutional statute. That is a piece of law that is of constitutional importance to the UK. Finnis and others would probably argue, and indeed have argued, that the European Communities Act 1972 cannot be a constitutional statute, because at the time, during the early 1970s, there was no indication from Parliament that they intended it to be such a piece of law. I'm not quite certain that this holds up very well either. I think that when King John signed the Magna Carta in 1215, he probably didn't intend that the rules of habeas corpus would still be in place 800 years later. Just because the relevant authority doesn't declare something to be a constitutional statute doesn't mean that it cannot be so. In many ways that's the whole point of having an unwritten constitution. The courts really have to take a much broader social view of this Act of Parliament and say, well, the European Communities Act offers a wide range of rights to UK citizens and intertwines UK and EU law to such an extent that this piece of law does take on constitutional importance. Fair enough, the European Communities Act hasn't been around as long as something like Magna Carta has, and perhaps hasn't worked its way into the very psyche of the English legal system in the same way, but we're still talking about a period of 40 years, and that represents an entire generation of people like me who have never known anything else apart from the UK being a part of the European Union. I've certainly enjoyed a number of those rights, whether it's going on holiday to Italy or Portugal, or even voting in the European elections. Being part of the European Union in many ways makes up the psyche or the subconscious of a lot of people in this country, simply because they've never known anything any different. On a slightly unrelated note, one could probably even argue that the Human Rights Act 1998 is a constitutional statute because of the impact it has had and the rights that it has granted people, and so even though that has been around for a much shorter period of time, this is again an example of a statute that has taken on constitutional importance. Whether a statute is constitutional or not is not dependent on how long it has been around or what Parliament intended at that particular time, but looking at a statute in the present day, i.e. 2016, and coming to a decision on whether a statute is constitutional in nature or not, is the best way that the courts are going to be able to approach this question. I think that any sensible legal scholar would have to come to the conclusion that something like the European Communities Act is clearly constitutional in nature. 
Finally, and very quickly, because I am starting to run on a little bit, the third and fourth criticisms are of Gina Miller, who brought the case in the first instance, and also the judges who made the decision. A lot of the tabloid press you may have seen have been very critical of Gina Miller for bringing this case and for challenging the government on this issue, and some have even raised the point that Gina Miller was not born in this country as an argument to use against her bringing this case. It's important to point out though that Gina Miller, even though she wasn't born in this country, is very much a British citizen, and people would do well to remember that the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson was also not born in this country, but he's obviously considered British. This then leads us also into the criticism of the judges, which was also an ad hominem attack made by the tabloids in this country. Daily Mail famously had the three judges' pictures put on its front page, with the headline, Enemies of the People. The fascist tendencies of the Daily Mail are of no surprise to anyone in particular, but for me as someone who studies the law, to actually attack judges in this way and to attack essentially the independence of the judiciary is really a step too far. It's a very cheap form of journalism and shows that the people who wrote this story and those involved in the editorial side at the Daily Mail and other newspapers as well have clearly not read the judgment and seen how well thought out it was. None of the judges made any comment about Brexit per se, they were very focused on the objective legal arguments that were involved and any criticism of the judges is completely unwarranted unless it can be backed up with evidence or some sort of solid accusation that the judges acted in a biased fashion. I guess my final thought on this issue is that this case is an absolutely fantastic one for students of constitutional law to study in more detail. The executive is trying to exercise its powers through the royal prerogative. However, there is a contest between the legislature and the executive as to whether this power can actually be exercised, and so it's for that third institution, the judiciary, to make the decision between the executive and the legislature as to who can actually trigger Article 50. As I mentioned right at the start, this is ultimately going to be a question for the Supreme Court to decide later on this year. I think that the question they have to answer is not the simple one between the executive and the legislature and who can actually trigger Article 50, but actually extends much more broadly than this. On the one hand, they could take a very narrow and black-letter law approach to this case and try and find some argument that suggests that the executive should be able to use the royal prerogative. Or, on the other hand, they can take a much broader approach and try and examine the nature of the constitution of the UK, taking into account the effect that triggering Article 50 would have on people's rights. This is a hugely interesting case, but don't be fooled into thinking that this is just a one-off. Remember, the Supreme Court does set precedent, and by deciding this case will set precedent for future international relations of the United Kingdom. By deciding in favour of the government, they have the potential to grant the executive a huge amount of legislative power over areas where there should indeed be a degree of parliamentary scrutiny involved. I think that to leave such decisions to the executive branch alone would be a worrying precedent to set. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast episode. If you did enjoy it, make sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, thanks as ever to bensound.com for providing the theme music to this podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye.